Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with James Cohn, Executive Director of Transparency International Canada. James and I ask what's wrong with Canada and what can be done to fix it. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. Today's podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv WorldCheck. For leading risk intelligence, think Refinitiv WorldCheck. WorldCheck helps you to identify red flags, fulfill know-your-customer due diligence screening obligations, and comply with regulation. WorldCheck is powered by 20 years of trusted data, technology, and human expertise in over 65 languages, with 50,000 new records added every month. To lead the fight against financial crime, it takes more than risk intelligence alone. It takes collaboration. From money laundering to human trafficking to terrorism financing, financial crime is in every corner of the world. So are we, helping you fight it. Refinitiv World Check. Find out more at Refinitiv.com. Well, it is a pleasure for me to be here today with James Cohen, who is the Executive Director of Transparency International Canada. James, welcome. Thank you for having me, Karen. Tell me a little bit about Canada. Let's talk about what you're doing in Canada now. And I think it's sort of interesting because Canada is one of these places, you know, there's a perception of a great deal of transparency, not a lot of corruption, but there's some real challenges. And in fact, Canada hasn't done as well on the index itself in the last round, I understand it. Yeah, sure. So I'm the executive director of Transparency International Canada. So as I alluded to, over 100 country chapters and contact networks around the world. And TI Canada, we've been around since 1996 as well, largely volunteer-based organization based out of York University in Toronto. And then we established a staff in about 2015, and we've really been growing since then. The CPI, the Corruption Perceptions Index, does get attention each year. But Canada has largely sat within the top 10 least corrupt countries for most of the existence of the CPI. There's kind of two prevailing thoughts about corruption in Canada, and I I read a lot of them, either emails to our office or in the comments section, tweets or whatnot. And it's either Canada is the most corrupt country in the world, worse than (laughs) Afghanistan. How can we be ranking Canada so high? Don't we see the corruption everywhere? Or what are you talking about? There's no corruption here. There's corruption overseas. We're fine. The reality lands somewhere closer to the lesser corruption, but we are most decidedly not corruption-free. Two years ago, Canada fell out of the top 10 of least corrupt countries for the first time, falling to 12th place and moving up one spot this year to 11th place was 77 out of 100. And there's a, a kind of couple things that cause that. The Corruption Perceptions Index, people will think, is it a specific issue that caused a country to fall? And it doesn't really quite work like that. The methodology of the CPI is that it's a composite index, working over a couple of years and looking over a couple of surveys. But major events can create an impact. So what we had in the last few years are two key things that brought corruption and Canada's place into perspective. One was the charges around the large engineering firm SNC-Lavalin that were brought about about a decade ago for violations of our Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. That's Canada's response to the 
OECD anti-bribery convention for actions that took place in Libya. And there was also some domestic actions here in Canada charged against SNC-Lavalin for uh, former executives uh, for bribes for a Montreal hospital. But it was especially the foreign bribes that were drawn out over the course of a decade and really came to a head, not just because of uh, SNC-Lavalin themselves, but for the political implications around that case. Now, what was trying to be pushed through were a form of deferred prosecution agreements in Canada, of which TI Canada, we came out in favor of deferred prosecution agreements. We think they can be a useful tool if used properly. But there was a lot of implications of inappropriate pressure from the prime minister's office on the attorney general to approve a remediation agreement for SNC-Lavalin. DPAs or remediation agreements, as they are called here in Canada, had just passed. And so all of a sudden there was this pressure from the prime minister's office to grant SNC-Lavalin a remediation agreement. The attorney general or minister of justice, Judy Wilson-Raybal, she held both portfolios. Uh, She resigned. This went to the papers and caused a huge political scandal. So it wasn't just about uh, SNC-Lavalin and Canada's place on enforcement of the CFPOA, but it was also the politics that ensued around it. And then the second major thing that kind of came out around this time, 2018, 2019, was the term snow washing. And this came about following the revelations of the Panama Papers. And the Canadian angle here is that Canada is not the place that you would normally think of to hide your dirty money or wash your money. Most people will think about, you know, somewhere in the European Alps or a tropical island, but not good, clean Canada. And so there's that reputational issue, but there's also, more importantly, our legal system, and importantly, our legal system that governs anonymous companies or ultimate beneficial ownership. It turned out that the good people at Mossack Fonseca and other intermediaries around the world were actually marketing Canada as a place to bring your dirty money and clean it because no one's really going to pay attention and there's a lack of mechanisms to ensure that there's any oversight. So being Canada, it became snow washing. Bring your dirty money to Canada and we'll be cleaned like the pure white snow. So snow washing clearly is this phenomenon that Canada is dealing with. And I know that you brought up Mossack Fonseca and corporate transparency. It is one of the missions that Transparency International Canada has, isn't it, to push for a public registry of companies? If you can say something about what looks good about that happening and what are some of the obstacles to that. In 2016, Canada had its FATF mutual evaluation And we were dragged within that mutual evaluation on recommendation 24 and 25, corporate beneficial ownership information and uh, trust beneficial ownership information. And the government's been moving in fits and starts here to try and address that. And we're up for a review, I believe, next year. So we need to make some progress on this front. Some of the obstacles, and I don't know if you want to comment on them, a lot of the corporate formation gathering the actual incorporation is done at the provincial level versus the federal level. So what kind of a will is there to bring together these disparate locations for incorporation and having this database? We face the great game in Canada of our national sport being federal provincial politics. Our charter sets out the powers between the jurisdictions, which has led us to have 14 corporate registries in the country. Uh, the provinces, the territories, and the federal government. 
So you can't just have the federal government make a beneficial ownership registry and expect to have an impact because you have 13 other registries. And the federal registry is not even the biggest one. It's about fourth or fifth. I think it was fourth last we evaluated in 2016. It's often been the pushback from the federal government that they have to work in lockstep with the provinces. So there has been an agreement since around 2017 between the feds and the provinces and the territories on beneficial ownership transparency, and it's worked in two phases. The first phase was for the federal government to update the Canadian Business Corporations Act so that all registered companies have to have their beneficial ownership information on record should a competent authority ask for that information. So whether it's law enforcement or the Canadian Revenue Agency or our financial intelligence unit, FinTrack. But that's not a warrant. So a competent authority can ask for that information and that's kind of giving the crooks time to sneak out the back door. Now the provinces and the territories were meant to mirror that legislation in their own corporate legislation. The second phase is that the federal government was then going to look into creating a public beneficial ownership registry. And this took place with a consultation that took place last year. And the idea was then to turn that into proposal legislation. So we participated in that public consultation and then boom, COVID hit. So the public consultation was only released about two weeks ago. That's not to say that there's been no other progress in that time. Some of the things that we were also lambasted for by the FATF were the gaps in our beneficial ownership reporting. So there are lawyers that don't have to do beneficial ownership due diligence or reporting uh, for suspicious transaction reports, as well as professions like real estate agents and accountants didn't have to do beneficial ownership due diligence. We made an update to our anti-money laundering law, the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Terrorist Financing Act, that all DNF BPs will have to conduct beneficial ownership due diligence by June this year. That's a really great step forward. As well, this idea that the provinces and the federal government need to move in lockstep isn't entirely true. For one, British Columbia has been moving ahead with establishing a Land Ownership Transparency Act. Now, that's not the corporate registry, but at least it's movement and other provinces could follow suit with the BC registry. It has its own challenges, that registry, but at least it's a step. As well, Quebec just went ahead and in the last year, their provincial budget said, we're going to make our beneficial ownership information publicly available on our corporate registry. And they've drafted the law and they're within a breath of passing that law. So it shows that even within our own country, the federal government is behind leadership here. So they really need to step up efforts as well. Talk to me a little bit about the issue of foreign illicit funds coming into Canada and you know what is being done to address that or what should be done to address that. Well, as I said at the beginning, you know, there are intermediaries, uh, we're, doing, we're looking into it, who are blatantly advertising that they can, uh, set, they can in, incorporate for their clients in Canada kind of blatantly saying that the oversight's not great and you won't be noticed. It's quite appalling how Canada is being advertised out there uh, on the internet as a place to uh, quietly stash your cash. And again, because who thinks of Canada and the effort just hasn't been put in. 
into enforcing this issue. It's not to say that there aren't people in law enforcement working hard on this and people within financial institutions trying to take it out. There are, but uh, I think the amount of money and the secrecy that it has, the odds are against us. You'll even hear law enforcement, and I've, I've definitely heard it kind of decry that what once uh, numbered corporations are involved, it just slows down the entire investigation effort. And then once it goes over, once it traces back overseas, then you're working on mutual legal assistance, which doesn't always work. Now, on you know international financial flows coming into Canada, you know, I this talking about this, especially in the BC context, can create backlash right away because there's a lot of push that money is coming from China, especially tied into the fentanyl trade. That is true. Um, it is not just. Um, China. It is many other uh, entities from around the world, whether it's from Latin America, Middle East, Russia. Uh, you know, if you look at Quebec, there's a lot of money coming from either, or there is suspicions of money from uh, Haiti or West uh, Francophone West Africa parking in Quebec as well. And so it's it's more that we've got the systems issue uh, than there's any one culture or country that's a problem. But also within Canada itself, crime organizations based here, you know, born and bred within Canada, exploit our beneficial ownership system. So even if we look back before the Cullen Commission in BC and uh, the explosion of what's called the Vancouver model of money laundering, you go back about a decade to the Charbonneau Commission in Quebec. And there it was found out about the corruption within the construction industry Construction firms were creating uh, ghost corporations to conduct faulty invoicing, and a lot of people were in on this. And so at the time, when the Charbonneau Commission was investigating all this, there was this really kind of anti-Quebec sentiment of, well, Quebec is a special culture, and of course things happen there. Everyone knows Quebec. Maclean's Magazine, uh, one of our, our major magazines in Canada, printed a cover of Quebec is a special case. And anybody within anti-money laundering or anti-corruption would just scoff at that because, you know, it's not the case. It's this national issue. And the fear is, or even the frustration is, that while the Cullen Commission investigates what's going on in Vancouver, a lot of people within the anti-money laundering field, anti-corruption field, are saying, why is a provincial commission looking into an issue that is fundamentally national? We can't keep doing this regionalization in Canada because outside of the community who really knows this, I mean, people know about generally money laundering in Vancouver and empty condos and uh, the prices going up. But it's this almost this view of, well, it's happening over on the other side of the Rockies. Vancouver is crazy. Uh, and so it's this continued regionalization. And we need to look at it as a national issue. So even there was a, a story in the CBC a little bit ago of uh, numbered companies in New Brunswick, one of our smaller Atlantic provinces, and those within the anti-money laundering field kind of always give a wink and a nod to, oh yeah, New Brunswick. The fact that within a country no one thinks about for money laundering, a province that no one thinks about for money laundering, and you know, cases connected to illegal fishing in West Africa and things like that. So this really is a national issue we need to look at. Well, I just want to dwell on this for one more second or two. You suggested it is a national issue. I think there's a feeling that the very legal structure makes it difficult 
to address money laundering that comes in from abroad and tax evasion and other issues, whether it's the conflict of privacy versus transparency. It's hard to seize assets in Canada, at least that's the reputation. Are those perceptions true? And what needs to be done about them if they are true? So there's a couple of challenges I think we need to address in Canada. First and foremost, establishment of a pan-Canadian publicly accessible registry of beneficial ownership. We would like to see that for corporations, trusts, and partnerships, but recognizing that trusts as a whole uh, other legal matter, we're starting with corporations. And I would never claim that any tool is a silver bullet for fighting corruption or anti-money laundering. They are both multifaceted issues with lots of ins and outs. But this is an incredibly powerful tool, not just for investigations, but for deterrence. If you look at the UK Companies House Registry, Scottish Limited Partnerships were formerly not part of that system. And uh, there were lots of stories about SLPs being exploited for money laundering from Eastern Europe. Once SLPs became part of a company's house, incorporation in them dropped by 80%. There is a deterrent effect to a public registry. You can't just have the registry on its own. It needs data verification systems. There's a lot of work being done on digital identification, other forms like that. So it's not an impossible task. It needs a staff that can conduct investigations and not just be a passive registry. And it also needs very explicit sanctions to deter those who would think who still want to try and game the system and think that if they're caught, a penalty is just the cost of doing business. And there also needs to be a repercussions for the intermediaries who sign off for the crooks. There's new law passed for, I'm getting the wording wrong, I know a lot of lawyers are complaining about the word reckless assistance for money laundering or corruption. And there's a lot of questioning of, well, what is reckless exactly? What's the measurement of reckless? So there needs to be something more specific like sign off on faulty documents. You need very clear proof. You need you were blindsided. Otherwise, you're going to face very stiff penalties. But beyond the registry, so there's a number of other things to do. Um, bringing a number of DNF BPs in line with beneficial ownership due diligence certainly helps. And a number of those associations are now calling for uh, public access to a registry as well because of their requirements to do this beneficial ownership due diligence. But then it comes down to our law enforcement itself and questions of are the RCMP best place to be conducting money laundering investigations? And we've had anti-corruption units and anti-money laundering units in Canada. There's a feeling that there's not enough funds going towards them or that they're not ring-fenced into their own work. And the common complaint you'll hear from former RCMP officers and law enforcement from other spots are that because of the complex nature of white collar and financial crime, it's very difficult to unravel terabytes upon terabytes of data, cross-border jurisdictions, the anonymous company trail kind of going dead once it goes overseas. And so a lot of the times these cases don't advance your career as well. There was a couple of years ago when the anti-corruption unit was disbanded, there was a lot of expertise that were lost. And it takes time to build up that expertise in financial crime. It's very specific. And so there's been kind of ruminations of, has the training been good enough and has the hiring process within the RCMP been good enough to get the right people in place to work on this financial crime as opposed to promoting people up within? Or should the RCMP just laterally bring 
people into it to help investigate. So there's legal tools to address, and then there's also institutional enforcement issues to address on this. So I know that you just recently participated, I think it was on the other side of this year, late 2020, uh, in a panel that was, what's the matter with Canada or what's wrong with Canada? And I think you've kind of just given us a number of things that are sort of on the list of things that certainly can be corrected. So in closing, talk to me a little bit about Transparency International Canada. You've, you've come out with a new strategic plan. What are some of the key elements of that plan and how that forms a basis of looking ahead that maybe can make you optimistic or feel optimistic? I, I, I'm trying to end on an optimistic note. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm an optimist on this. I mean, people will often say, you're working on corruption? Good luck with that. Well, that attitude doesn't help things. I'm very much of the mindset, the old saying, corruption greases the wheels of corruption. But I'd add that apathy and cynicism can kind of pave the way to the path to that grease. You have to show people that it can be fought. It always seems like something out of the view to people because it's, it's rules set by the more powerful but it can be changed and it can be fought. And within our new strategy, we're kind of pushing forward the way on how to do that. So we have some elements that have been with us for a while of our emphasis on education and evidence-based research and really solutions. We'll call corruption out on specific issues when we need to, but we really want to dive into the systems levels issues. So that's why we're looking at beneficial ownership transparency. I've talked a lot about anti-money laundering, but dabbled a little bit in our enforcement in uh, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. So we're also looking at that. But what I'm really happy about with this new strategic plan is that in a full-throated way, T.I. Canada is saying we're advocating for something. We are full-throatedly going to be saying, here's where we see the problem. Here's where we see the deficiencies. Here's where we see the lack of law or regulation or how we're not doing it well enough. And here's how to do it, whether we're telling the federal government, provinces, corporate Canada or our civil society peers. We want to call out the problems where we see them make concrete solutions and work with as many people as we can to achieve those goals. So we want to adapt to where there are opportunities, but build on our knowledge. So we're still going to be working on beneficial ownership transparency or the end snow washing campaign, as we call it. We're still going to be working on greater enforcement of the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. We've been working on transparency in mining. We want to work on business integrity as well. And we'll see where else it goes from there. Well, James, thank you so much. That's the good fight, and I wish you great success in it. It is a pleasure to talk with you today. Grateful to be talking with you, and thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to my conversation with James Cohn from Transparency International Canada. I hope you found what you heard compelling, and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.